Before we begin, uh, someone last week, and I forgot exactly who it was, asked about the difference between an allegory and a parable. And I was sort of uh, curious about that because really I'd never thought about it. They are so closely related that many people will use them interchangeably. And that's really not wrong, except that, and I did do a little research, and this is what I found. A parable, now let's go to the allegory first. An allegory is a story which may or may not be factual, but its emphasis is on the people who are often used in place of other meanings. And that's where the story or the allegory of the woman at the well in John's Gospel comes into play. It can be taken on face value just as it is and be meaningful. But if you look at it as an allegory, then the woman represents Judaism the jar, the water jar that she has is empty. It represents the Jewish faith at that particular time, which is empty. It was not, uh, the faith was not based on the teachings of Moses about God. It was their understanding that worshiping the law was the same as worshiping God, and of course, we know that that's not true. And there were a number of other things. The five husbands, for example, represent the five countries that had conquered Judah or the Jewish people over a period of 2,000 years. Uh, and the fifth one was the Romans, who was, uh, according to the story, uh, her current husband. And meaning that the leaders of the Jewish people were cooperating with their conquerors at the various times uh, in order to kind of save their own hides and their power and their position, etc. Now, you go to a parable, right up front, the speaker as well as the listeners know that it is a story it is not a historical fact. And there is a lesson in that story. The description says, a parable is a short story designed to teach a moral or a religious lesson. And so the idea is that we know it's a story and we have to look at the message or the lesson involved. So you have one is based on people, the other is based on uh, sort of the content or the facts of the story itself. Does that make it clear? They can be pretty well used almost interchangeably, uh, but to be a little more accurate, um, an allegory can be, but isn't necessarily uh, a, fact, a factual uh, event. All right, we'll kind of leave that one go.
Let's begin. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for this time to bring us together to understand and study the book of Revelation. Help us then to really set aside any preconceived notions that we might have or have learned or thought and really understand where we are in this overall teaching. Because what it is really saying to us in the long run is that I have taught you over and over and over and told you that my way is the best and the only way to heaven. And therefore, please open your mind and heart. So, Lord, help us to listen to you as you speak to our hearts. Well, we thank you for this time. And we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today's lesson covers primarily chapters 19 and 20. I know that the assignment said uh, chapter 21, verse 8, but I'm going to leave that for next week because it works into next week's uh, lesson a little bit better than it would be if we sort of dangled it out at the end of today. Next week will be the last week that we will have uh, a full teaching on the book of Revelation, but that doesn't mean that that's the end. The following week, which would be the 5th of April, I believe, uh, what we're going to do is to finish up that small amount at the end of chapter 22, and then I want to do a summary and pull this all together so that if anyone asked you what the book of Revelation was all about, or if they give you a their impression, which is often wrong, uh, you'll have something really uh, hopefully in mind to uh, dispute that and give them the facts. All right. So that is what. So I I. Uh, encourage you to come to the last class. A lot of people will skip the last class thinking, oh, I've learned it all, you know, so it's not that important. But I think the last class in this particular case can be the most important. All right. Chapters uh, 19 and 20 are primarily on who God is and God's uh, power over evil. Last week we had uh, a small but important subject of the destruction of Jerusalem. And most people will think, well, the Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 AD primarily in uh, retaliation for the Jews or the Romans crucifying Jesus Christ. Well, that's partly true, but that's not the entire reason. Uh, the more important reason, at least to God, was the fact that the temple, which was the outward sign of God's presence among the people, and specifically the uh, Holy of Holies within the temple, uh, was being used in the wrong way for the wrong purposes. It was uh, a status symbol, and that is not what God wanted. 
the temple was to be used to worship God and it was not to be used for the pride and glory of the Jewish people, particularly the temple rulers. So over a period of time, God had warned the people. He destroyed Solomon's temple back in the 6th century for the same reason. And the temple at the time of Christ was built by Herod the Great about 60 years before that. And it, it was now being used in the same way as Solomon's temple, as a great shrine to the people who were running the uh, Jewish faith. Remember, the monarchy had died with the uh, Babylonian exile. So between the time of the return of the exiles to Israel around the end of the 6th century BC, uh, beginning in the year 539 BC, uh, the people were sort of caught up in observing the laws to the point where the laws then became what they were worshiping. They went from one extreme of worshiping foreign idols, and pagan idols, that is, and a lot of other nonsense. And they were determined that they were going to fulfill all of the laws that were in the book of Deuteronomy. And they went to the opposite extreme of worshiping the laws. And that's not what it was all about. God does not want us to worship laws. He wants us to worship him through each other, by giving ourselves to each other. Right? God so loved the world, that is, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son to come and teach us and then to be the the epitome, you might say, of the sacrifice that was due to the Father by mankind because mankind could not offer anything worthwhile of his own. So it had to be a divine and the sacred Lamb of God that Christ was. And then Christ came to give his life, as I've just said, for us and to teach us how to give our lives back to God through other people. The book of Revelation talks about the end of the world. And that's what we'll be getting into this week and next week a little bit, not entirely, because the end of the world is something that no one knows anything about. But in my way of thinking and interpreting uh, the scriptures over a long period of time, I see that the end of the world is not going to happen until every man, woman, and child living between now and whatever then that time is, has an opportunity to know who Jesus Christ is and why he came to earth and what he stood for. 
once that has happened and everyone has had an opportunity to choose, then that is when the end of the world will happen. And those who have chosen properly, those who have chosen God and chosen to follow him will not have anything to worry about. Unfortunately, as the book has already said in many ways, people do not seem to get the message. And even when they do, if it's not what they wanted, if it is not to their benefit or to their liking, they'll reject it without thinking about the consequences. And God says, when the end comes, those who have chosen rightly have nothing to worry about. Those who have chosen wrongly will un unfortunately uh, have to experience the consequences. And there is no alternative. It's one or the other. And that is the scary part of the book of Revelation. You know, all of this apocalyptic uh, language and, you know, the spirits and all of that stuff, we can sort of put out of our mind. It was written for the people of the first century because that was a style of writing that was popular at that time, just like science fiction is today, or romance, romance novels, which... I can think are kind of rubbish, but nevertheless, they are extremely popular. Mary Higgins Clark has become a billionaire simply by writing that kind of stuff. Um, what we have to really be concerned about is our relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father through Christ, all right, along with the Holy Spirit. And Lent is the perfect time to do that. Lent is when we should take inventory of where we stand. It's so important, really, not to waste this time. And if we do, we will find that our Easter is much more enjoyable for the right reasons. We can forget about... Uh, new clothes and candy and Easter bunnies and all of that jazz. Uh, we, you know, if the Lord Jesus raises from the dead within our hearts, then that's what makes us realize and experience a very happy Easter. Okay. Any questions so far? All right. Let us let us go on. I do this every week. I make all those copies up there, and then I don't keep a copy for myself. I want to read this because. I want to make sure we get all of it in there, in the second paragraph here. In our meeting today, we will discuss the writer's, the writer of Revelation's description of the final battle between the forces of evil and good. 
And again, we must remind you that this battle is between God and Satan, not with mankind, except that mankind has become the pawn. When Satan tries to get back at God, he works through mankind just in the same way that when God is trying to uplift mankind, he works through mankind and asks them to work through others. In other words, the body of Christ is us. Every man, woman, and child who has accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, whether he thinks about it that way or not, uh, because that is more of a term that has come over from the Protestant churches, which I think is a beautiful term, and it really tells us something, who we are. Okay? We have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and God works through us for the good of all mankind. But Satan can work through us as well to get back at God by causing sin. All right. Now, don't blame everything on to the devil. Like I've said before, the devil made me do it. Uh-uh. Now, the devil is not going to work with an individual. Yeah, there are some very extreme cases. Yes, we know that. But in most cases, it is like ISIS. It is like Nazism in the past. It is like the Crusades way back in the 10th and 11th century that went totally wrong. It, it is like the Spanish Inquisition, those kinds of things that may have started out for good reasons, but in some, at some point in time, they take a bad turn and become an instrument of Satan. That's how Satan works. And believe me, I've only mentioned a few of those kinds of things because we've had a number of others, Stalinism for that matter, and that kind of thing. Okay. So keep in mind that this battle between good and evil is something that has been raging since the fall of the uh, angels way back before creation and will continue because remember... They are God's creation, and they have or had a free will just like we do. So regardless, God uh, has to put up with them until a particular time at the end of um, the world. Okay. Humanity is only a pawn in this battle, not a participant in the traditional sense of being involved in an early, earthly, warlike battle. Nevertheless, the only thing we have to worry about is which side we will be on at the end. That is, the end of our life. Don't worry about the end of the world. We can't do anything about that. And we've talked about that quite a bit. This might take some discernment on our part, and Lent is the time to discern, okay? Because Satan is very deceiving, and mankind can get up, get caught up in evil ways without seeing this until it is too late. However, 
we must also understand that God is always there calling us back to his side of the battle and is waiting for us at the door of our heart to open it and to let him come in. This was um, one of the comments made in one of the letters to the seven churches right up in the front of uh, the book of Revelation. Okay, So, let's begin with chapter 17. Uh, I'm sorry, 19. I had this open to 17. Uh, yeah, don't be afraid to correct me because sometimes I get carried away and, uh, you know, I, I always have to work, um, of course I've read this many, many times, but I always have to work a couple of weeks ahead of time uh, just to keep ahead of you, say. And uh, often uh, I'll get confused as to what week we're really talking about. Okay. After this, well, this is chapter 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and might belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great harlot. We're talking now about Jerusalem, okay, who corrupted the earth with her harlotry. She has avenged on her the blood of her servants. They said a second time, Hallelujah! Smoke will rise from her forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped. Remember the twenty-four uh, creatures, uh, elders rather, in the beginning of uh, this book. We talked about who they were. Many people think that they are the 12 tribes of uh, Judah and uh, the 12 apostles. Well, that might be, but uh, probably not. It just represents all Christianity, okay? And those people before Christ's death and resurrection who accepted God and were faithful to him. Remember, just accepting Christ seems to eliminate everyone that was, uh, everyone who had gone before Christ's death and resurrection and didn't know him. Well, God is not going to exclude them either. They are included in this. And the only thing is, they had to wait for their final a reward until the death and resurrection of Christ before the gates of heaven were opened. But all of those faithful who died prior to Christ will also join us in heaven. So the 24 elders really represent all of humanity, both before and after Christ. A voice coming from the throne said, Praise our God, all you servants, and you who revere him, great and small alike. And then I heard something like the sound of a great multitude, or the sound of rushing water, 
are mighty peals of thunder, as they said, Hallelujah, the Lord has established his reign, our God, the Almighty. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding day of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. All right. The Lamb, of course, is Christ, and the bride is whom? The church. We, not church buildings, uh, not the institutional church, but we, the members of the church, are the bride of Christ. She was allowed to wear a bright, clean linen garment. The linen represents the righteous deeds of the holy ones. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who have been called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true. They come from God. So I fell, now this is John, the writer. I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers who bear witness to Jesus. Worship God. Witness to Jesus in the spirit of prophecy. A very important directive there. The, the, the angel, remember all of God's creation, were created to know him, to love him, and to serve him. That goes for the angels as well as mankind. That is the primary reason that we were created in the first place. All right? And so the whole idea of witnessing to Jesus Christ in the spirit, or a, a pro, in the spirit of prophecy, or just witnessing, period, because not many of us are prophets. I don't know of any yet, anyways, uh, that is currently living. And, but there might be. All right. But it's the idea. We all have an obligation to share our faith with others. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to wear uh, billboards and go up and down the street uh, advertising. We don't have to beat people over the head and all of that kind of thing. But we have to share our faith whenever we have an opportunity. And that is something that Catholics in particular are not comfortable with because we haven't been taught that. Finally, the church is coming around to realizing that. And that is something that's very important and has been in this book for 2,000 years. Anybody have a problem with witnessing? You all do, I'm sure. You do all do at times. And that's, that's understandable. But once you get accustomed to it, it becomes not only easy, but actually enjoyable. You actually enjoy, and I don't mean it's a, a big, funny, ha-ha type of thing. It just makes you feel good when you can open up and share your faith with others. Whether they're already Catholic, whether they're kind of lukewarm Catholic or not Catholic at all. Uh -huh. 
Share your faith with others. It is a, a sign of your commitment to God and your relationship with God. All right, let's go on. And then I saw the heavens open. Now, this is after, remember, this is after the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, remember, this book was written towards the end of the first century. We are not certain, but it is most likely that it was written after the year 70 A.D., uh, because it talks about the actual physical destruction of Jerusalem here. Uh, and, of course, the writer wouldn't have any idea if this, if he was writing this beforehand. He would have to be thinking about something that was to happen in the future, and I just don't see that uh, working uh, on his behalf. Says, and then I saw the heavens open, and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True. Remember the white horse back in the early part of this book, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're often referred to? What did that represent? Hello? Remember, I said. Remember I said the white horse represented war, righteous war, all right? And you'll see that again here. But we're talking about now the battle between good and evil. The rider was called faithful and true. Who else is called faithful and true? Jesus Christ himself. So this rider is Christ. He judges and wages war in righteousness. His eyes were like a fiery flame. And on his head were many diadems. He had a name inscribed that no one knows except himself. Now that's a kind of odd wording. No one knows except himself. Well then what good would that have done anybody? Right? All right. That is sort of a euphemistic way of saying that the Jewish people would not actually voice or even write the name of Yahweh. Yahweh was so sacred to them that they would not even voice it, and that is how the word Lord came into use, because they would then use the word Lord in place of the term or the word Yahweh, which is more of a title rather than a name. But that is what is mentioned here, because Jesus is God. He is the third person, uh, I'm a second person, rather, of the Blessed Trinity, but nevertheless, he is God. And therefore, he can really be Yahweh. He wore a cloak that had been dipped in blood, that is, his crucifixion, and his name was called the Word of God. That's the first time it is written in uh, the Bible in this way. All right. Now, John refers to it 
in the first 18 chapter of first 18 verses of chapter one of the Gospel of John, but not in exactly uh, by calling Jesus the Word of God. He is talking about the Word was God, remember, uh, but not using it in this particular way, but this is what is was meant. Yes. Oh, all right. What what Mike is asking for is, is a more understandable uh, meaning for the word of God, right? Um, I'm sure all of you at some point has said to someone else, uh, you've made a promise or you've made a statement and uh, you will say, well, I give that to you on my word, meaning your whole being is reflecting that particular truth. All right. So when Jesus is called the word of God, both in the Bible or in reference to the Bible, it is really talking about all truth. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The word of God is truth being expressed or manifested in a particular person, and that is Christ himself. The armies of heaven follow him, that is, all of the faithful who are now in heaven, because remember, this is after the time of Christ's crucifixion. So the gates of heaven have been opened, and all of those faithful who lived before Christ and after Christ uh, are now considered the armies of heaven. Uh, the armies of heaven followed him, mounted on white horses and wearing clean white linen. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword to strike the nations. Okay. Now this term, sword out of his mouth, don't think about some metal piece, you know, coming out of his mouth. What he's talking about there is the Bible. All right. The word of God in written form because it declares who God is and what his objective is, his whole plan of salvation, that when followed correctly, according to the wishes of God, then becomes a two-edged sword. And you'll see that again in a few minutes. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword to strike the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod what is the iron rod? It is God's will, God's plan that will never change. It was the same at the time of creation and always will be the same. The iron rod is the doors open to mankind who are faithful to God's plan of salvation 
and to their part or their portion of that plan that each of us must bear. And he himself will tread out in the winepress the wine of the fury and the wrath of God, the Almighty. He has a name written on his cloak and on his thigh, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, because he is above all earthly kings or lords. And that is why you see the first king and the first word Lord capitalized and the second one not capitalized meaning that God, Jesus Christ, is the king of all earthly kings and the Lord of all earthly lords. And then I saw an angel standing on the sun. He cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying overhead, Come here, gather for God's great feast to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military officers, and the flesh of warriors, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to fight against the one riding on the horse and against his army. This is the army of Satan. Verse 19, and then I saw the beast uh, and the kings of the earth. These are earthly people who have rejected Christ or in some cases not openly rejected him, but just have become indifferent and I don't care. I don't want to know any more about it. I've had people say that to me. Oh, I've been a good person. I just don't want to get bothered with all of that Bible stuff. You know? um, unfortunately, it's like a doctor giving a prescription to somebody and they're setting it aside, you know, on the medicine cabinet, not bothering to take it. It's the same kind of thing in a spiritual sense. Okay? We can't get better physically if we don't follow uh, good, healthy habits and whatever the doctors have prescribed. So <clears throat> this is Satan's army now is gathering together to worship against the army of God, the righteous, those who are faithful to him. See, then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, I'm repeating myself here, uh, gathered to fight against the one riding the horse, that is the white horse, and against his army, that is the army of Christ. The beast was caught and with it the false prophet who had performed in its sight the signs by which he led astray those who had accepted the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped its image. The idea of the false prophet has been a little confusing throughout this book, and I haven't been able to find uh, a consensus of uh, commentaries here 
to explain that well. So I hesitate to give you an explanation. I just really don't think it's that important for us to understand because it's a minute part of this. We have to look at the greater picture. The two were thrown alive into the fiery pool, burning with sulfur. The rest were killed by the sword that came out of the mouth of the one riding on the horse. We just explained that. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Remember, this is still apocalyptic language. They have to put it in some context of what has happened because this is to show that the end of the world has now started and the end of the reign of evil has ended with the capture and the destruction of Satan, finally. That will happen before, and then the last resurrection will happen. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hands... (coughs) the key of the abyss and a heavy chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, which is the devil or Satan, and tied it up for a thousand years and threw it into the abyss, which he locked over and sealed, so that it could no longer lead the nations astray until the thousand years are completed. Now, the thousand years are not specifically 1,000. As we've said before, at the time of the 144,000 earlier, it is an indeterminate long period of time. So don't get hung up on the thousand years. When, uh, back here 17 years ago, when uh, we changed from 19... the the 20th century into the 21st century, uh, a lot of people got really concerned because they felt that that was the end of the thousand years and something major was going to happen. Well, the only thing major that was going to happen and did happen was everybody's computers got screwed up (laughs) because they were all dealing with 19 and did not make provisions for Uh, four numerals to indicate the proper year, and nobody thought about putting 20 in there. So that's the only thing that happened, but, you know, the world did not fall apart. Now, why would Satan be released after he was thrown into uh, the abyss for a thousand years? Anyone have an idea? Yes, that's exactly right. What she said was because God was hoping that Satan would eventually repent. And that's true. God always is waiting and giving us, all mankind, all creation, an opportunity to repent and change their ways, change their minds. That's the same reason 
why at the time of Christ's crucifixion, remember there was a great earthquake and the veil of the temple, which concealed the Holy of Holies, was torn from top to bottom. We'll hear that uh, on uh, Holy Holy Saturday uh, evening. Uh, well, we might also hear it on Good Friday as well. Anyways, that is a sign again of God's final damnation, you might say. But he still waits for 40 years until the year 70 AD before the final destruction of Jerusalem because he's hoping that those people who were indifferent to Christ or worse, those who crucified him will finally have gotten to see the light and changed their minds and their hearts. So God is always waiting for mankind and giving him, mankind in general, the opportunity to repent. He doesn't want people to go to hell. He loves all of his creation. And it's important that we understand that. The door is always open. And we have to take advantage of that. As I've said over and over, God has given us many, many opportunities to repent and to come back to him. And yet, as we've seen here, over and over, whenever he has come down and lowered the boom uh, on mankind, some will change their minds and repent. But others just go the opposite way. They figure, well, how can he do that? I'm going to do this anyway, so forth and so on. But unfortunately, they have to suffer the consequences of that. All right. Yes. We think so. Uh, the comment here is if God gives Satan an opportunity to repent, does he give those people who died, I assume you meant died, uh, with serious sin, does he give them another opportunity? The church does not come down one way or the other. But this book will talk about the second judgment, the second resurrection. And I have often felt exactly as you are thinking now, that there is the opportunity for those people again. And if they re still refuse, then there's no alternative. But we can't count on that, you see. Because, and the church rightly so, 
cannot say that. Because obviously, you're going to find some people who are going to wait for that time period. All right? Uh, that's, you know, that's kind of human nature in a way. They're always going to wait for the, the ultimate or the last minute or whatever, the last call for, you know, the bar. Um, yes? Like, I have a sister now. She's an atheist, and she says, oh, Madge, you're just brainwashed. You're just being all holy and down. And I said, yeah, but it's time that you start believing in God. All right, if she dies and she don't have accepted God by then, then she don't have another chance? Well, we don't know for sure, Madge, uh -huh. but what we're just saying is that there might be another chance. Because my whole one side of my whole side of family, they're atheists. They just think, well, you're you just because you think you're going to heaven, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, 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 I know I'm going. Because <laughs> I believe in God that much. Okay, well, good for you, good for you. But I I feel that you should do a lot of praying for those relatives that you know feel so indifferent about it. Rita, you had a question? Yes. We have we have no way of knowing. Again, that's apocalyptic language. What happens in that thousand years, or if it is a thousand years, we don't know. Remember, elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about uh, to God, a thousand years can be like one day, and one day can be like a thousand years. You know. No. Do we know if God has past, Remember, this is talking about Satan, so we have no way of knowing. Um, isn't that the reason that we pray for the dead and pray for people after yes. they die? We don't know where they ended up. I mean, we don't we don't know for sure. But That's right. That the whole reason and we should Catholics? we should never make a, a quick judgment. Right. Yeah. Remember the communion of saints. A lot of people totally forget about the whole idea of one of the tenets of our faith is the communion of saints, which means that people who are loved ones, our neighbors, our friends, etc., who have died, they are not totally gone. Remember that the soul lives on and we have not only an obligation but sort of uh, part of our teaching is to pray for the dead. Yeah. Hoping that at some point in time they will repent if they hadn't already. Yes? My question is with all the evil we could be, yes, very much so. Yes. What's that? That we'd be deceiving ourselves, not Satan himself. Well, we could be deceiving ourselves if we don't need Satan. You know, mankind is pretty much uh, pretty wicked in its own right. I'd hate to believe that this is how his influence us. Well, 
we we have no way of knowing. And then that thing is, yeah, the closer you stay to God, the better your you are. Yeah, the better your chances are. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. All right, let's let's go on. One of my favorite subjects. Well, favorite isn't a good word. Most interesting subjects here is Gog and Magog. I'm sure you all just understand that, eh? <clears throat> when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released uh, from his prison, that is the abyss, and he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, that is, all over the earth. Gog and Magog together uh, them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, Gog and Magog, forget about it, really. It doesn't pertain to us. All right. Now, how many of you read Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39? You want to give us a synopsis? <laughs> All right. Uh, it is again a part of apocalyptic language and I'm just going to read a small part of this out of uh, the book of Ezekiel okay? chapters 38 and 39 I won't read all of it even though they're fairly short but uh, it is so confusing that it says the first prophecy against God G-O-G. Thus the word of the Lord came to me. Now this is Ezekiel. Son of man, turn toward Gog, the land of Magog. That's confusing in itself. Uh, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And prophesy against him. So, Gog is a person. Magog is a place, a field, a battlefield. Thus says the Lord God, See, I am coming to you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. You know, who is Meshech? You remember the three men that were with David in the book of, uh, I mean Daniel, in the book of Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? All right. This is the same name, not necessarily the same person, because Ezekiel was written in the 6th century B.C. The book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C. So you have uh, too much of a difference to be the same person. Okay. However, it was a common name at that particular time. <clears throat> See, I am coming to you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will lead you forth with all your army, horses, riders, all handsomely outfitted, a great horde with bucklers and shields, all of them carrying swords, Persia, Cush, and put with them all. These are places, not people. 
Gomer with all his troops. Beth, I can't pronounce this one. Beth Togarma. From the recesses of the north, with all its troops, many people um, with you. Prepare yourselves to be ready, you and all your horde assembled about you, and be at my disposal. For many days you will be mustered in, in the last years you will come against the nation which has survived the sword, which has been assembled from uh, many peoples. Now this goes on and on and talks about a mythical war again between God and Satan. We human beings are only caught up as pawns if we are or if we have gone over to one side or the other. All right. If we have gone to the side of God, then we have nothing to worry about. If we have gone over to the side of evil, uh, and that is not something that most people do consciously. Well, but we went over to the side of the Lord. Okay, but isn't Satan going to fight to get us tied up over there? In a way, yes. But, and that's a constant battle that all mankind uh, has to be aware of and fight. And you do that with prayer. Right? But a lot of people will not consciously go over to Satan, although you do hear uh, occasionally about some cult uh, that worships, worships Satan, but that's relatively minor. The idea is Satan doesn't need any cults to uh, be his forerunner or stand out in front for him. Uh, he can deceive in many ways, and the way he deceives is very slight by getting us to ignore God or not be aware of God or so uh, taken up by sports or our jobs or Hollywood uh, or, you know, some individual human being uh, that we just uh, are so taken by them that we just totally forget God. And look what society is doing today. The whole idea of there's more money spent on cosmetics and on gyms and trying to keep the body looking great. And some of that is okay, but, you know, it can be overdone. How much money and time uh, could be spent on preparing the soul to meet its Lord. That's where the danger comes in. When we overdo things of the earth to make us so-called happy uh, or content or prosperous or proud, when those things become our God, then we are on the side of Satan without ever thinking about it. Well, Father Joel at St. Rose, one Sunday, he says, behind a hearse, do you ever see a trailer with all your material things? <laughs> and so the church just went, ooh, dead silent. <laughs> yes. But that makes a lot of sense. That's right. 
Yes. Yes. You don't have your <coughs> earthly possessions coming behind you in the hearse. No. That's true. But you see what I'm saying, how mankind is so taken up by things of this world that we don't seem to have time uh, to spend with God. And all he's asking is for a short amount of time each day to spend with him in all sincerity. Yes, Joe? Well, that's, I understand what you're saying. Most of the religions that call themselves Christian, aside from the Catholic Church, have been developed simply because the people who start them do not want to follow or be told what to do. And so they take what they think is the good out of the Catholic Church or the Catholic faith and twist it around to suit their own needs. Uh, last Christmas I was visiting a family member and I let them know right up front that I was going to go, I wanted to go to church Christmas morning. Uh, and I want to go because I want to go, not because I have to go. All right. But they said, well, we're going to our church uh, Saturday evening. Would you care to go? And I said, sure, I will go out of respect. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, what it was, was a lot of uh, boom, boom, boom music and a children's uh, part, which I thought was kind of nice and cute for children. There was a sermon that was reasonable um, by the minister. He wasn't, he was dressed very casually, um, which is no problem. But that was it. That was the whole Christmas service. And I was thinking, hello, you know, where is Christ in all of this? Where, you know, there wasn't any crochet or, you know, a crib of any kind around. There wasn't any indication of the birth of the Savior of the world at all. The children was about Santa Claus, and, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, when they read, did they read anything from the Bible? No, no, there was no reading at all. Now, I, I don't, you know, necessarily want to put all of that down, but that to me is not worshiping the God who gave us His only Son for a divine purpose. Now, there was there was a couple thousand people there. I don't think my little no, comment. No, I'm talking about in your family. Oh, they knew better. They all knew better. Oh, okay. Yeah, they knew better. Yes, uh, because just my being there, they knew better. Uh, nevertheless, most, most, not all, most non-Catholic. Christian faiths were born out of a desire to do their own thing. 
And the one thing that the Catholic Church has is a central creed and uniformity. And I think it is the only, if you think about it, it is the only organization that is has been in existence for 2,000 years. Can you think of any other organized group of people that have been in existence for 2,000 years? Orthodox what? But they are a break-off from the Catholic Church. But not in an organized way. You see, they lost all of their organization with the Babylonian captivity. After that, the priesthood disappeared and never to be rebuilt. After the death and resurrection of Christ, when the temple was destroyed, animal sacrifice disappeared. All right? So even Judaism has changed, as I've said many times, over and over and over every 500 years. It is not the original, and it is not, of course, according to the strict teachings of God through Moses. So the Catholic Church, because of its format, its organization, and its creed, is the only church that has been in existence for 2,000 or more years. Uh, but we're getting a slightly off to the track here. I'm not going to read any more about Gog and Magog because I, I don't really feel that that is important. And as you've probably realized in this class, is I'm not getting into a lot of the detail that is in here because it is apocalyptic literature or language uh, that is no longer in existence and is not used. So it is really not that important that we be concerned about it. What we have to be concerned about from this book is its central message. And that is what I'm going to be bringing to you in two weeks with the last meeting. We, there will be a small uh, portion of scripture left, but what will really be the central meaning of, or the purpose of the last meeting is to bring it all together, giving you, and I'll hopefully have it in writing, uh, the central message of the book of Revelation. I remember that there was a person, one of our members here, that wrote on the registration form that all of you filled out on the first day uh, that they were terrified when they first read the book of Revelation because of its strange language and how it affected each of us or each of the people at that particular time, particularly this particular writer. And there is nothing to be afraid of as long as we are on the right side. Well, all right, I, I understand where you're coming from. But again, you must understand that there was, this was written to people of the first century. 
and it was written in a style that they were familiar with. And of course, we're talking to the educated people. But unfortunately, the uneducated people followed and looked to the educated for uh, direction. Thank you. Uh, and that is, that of course, is why the boom has been lowered on those educated people because of their influence on all of those, you know, at a different level. The language was familiar to those people. You know, they read it in the book of Ezekiel. They read it in the book of Daniel. The educated people. But they went to extremes. They read it in Babylon during the exile from the book of Deuteronomy. But once they got back to uh, Israel, after the exile ended, they again went to extremes and they did their own thing. The point I'm making here is that whenever we are faced with anything we don't understand or where we want to understand better, you take it into prayer. That is one of the purposes of prayer. And most people won't do that. It's human nature to not put a great deal of of um, uh, I don't know the word I want to use um, faith I guess is they don't want to put a great deal of faith in prayer and faith comes from prayer so you have to work at it it's like any other relationship to keep a beautiful relationship going, you have to work at it. And it is a give-and-take form of work. Uh, so I can understand where many people will give up on reading the book of Revelation because of all the weird uh, talk. Unfortunately, you have to sometimes set that aside and uh, that's why I teach, is to help people see the light, see what is most important. And you'll see that hopefully in the last class, two weeks from today, uh, where we pull this together so that you can see it in a brief form, but get the main message. And that's what I'm hoping and praying for all of you to do. Any questions? Yes. That's right. No is an answer. Or not yet. Or not yet. That's right. But God, God is constantly saying that he is testing us in one form or another and wants us to pray consistently, 
Remember, there's a story uh, in the Bible of the woman who is constantly pleading with the, the local uh, ruler, governor, or whatever it is, uh, to correct a situation between her and another person. And this governor gets kind of fed up with this woman's persistence, so he gives in to her. And in a way, that's the way God is treating us quite often when our prayer isn't answered the first time around. The other thing that we have to worry about when we pray is that if the only time we pray to God is when we want something, uh, he is going to, you know, look a little more cautiously at that. I always call them the gimme prayers, you know. <laughs> Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that, Lord, give me something else. How often do you pray in thanksgiving once you've gotten something? All right, let's take this rain. For five years, we had a drought. And everybody was hoping and praying for rain. Now we get it in an abundance. <laughs> to use a, that's not even an adequate word, an overabundance, but have we actually prayed and given God thanksgiving? I haven't heard of any uh, prayers from the church or anyone else saying, thank you, Lord, for all of this rain, because it's filled up our reservoirs, our lakes, our streams, etc., to the point of overflowing at times. But that is a sign of God's love it can be overflowing when used properly. Yes, Dick? I'm trying to fit something else into uh, this last chapter. We have a thought of a false prophet. We have a thought, uh, a thought of final coming. Final coming is obvious. That is the false prophet the end of the thousand years? Well, the false prophet has never been fully explained. And as I mentioned earlier, I've tried to do some research. And I cannot quite understand the author's meaning of the false prophet. Uh, so I hesitate to give you an answer. I thought that was somewhere else in, in well, there are the the two prophets are mentioned earlier in I think chapter 13, but that's a, a Ezekiel, I mean uh, Elijah and Moses. Those are the prophets mentioned there, but that's very understandable uh, because of other descriptions. They are not false prophets. So. But who the false prophet is is not clear. No, but I thought the beast was Satan. So I'm confused. Well, the, that might be, but uh, it is not clear. It sounds like See, there's someone besides the, the devil, which maybe the devil isn't the beast. Well, also the words, three of them down the words beast was also referred to the Herodian dynasty. You know, but the false prophet has never been really clear in this book. And uh, I've tried to get several uh, 
commentaries to find out, but I did. Do you think that false prophet, though, is, is, is just saying, is that what takes you away from God? In many, in many ways, so yes. Everybody maybe has their own false prophet, or what What takes them away from God, whether that's Satan or whatever. That, that could be, but there again, not it's, not, it's not defined. Yeah. And it would probably be under that uh, understanding that would be pretty difficult to define, because it could be anybody. It could be anything. That's right. All right. Uh, I think we're running out of time here. Uh, any other real hard-burning questions? Okay. All right. We have two more lessons next week and the following week. Uh, let's hope that we can make this book a little clearer, understandable, particularly in the last week. So let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the freedom uh, and the ability to discuss Holy Scripture and to express our views, our concerns, our misunderstandings. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts to you and your Holy Spirit to enlighten us to the truth. What is correct? What is the proper way of thinking. Who are the various characters that are mentioned in this book? And how do they affect us? Or do they affect us? Or not? Give us the strength and the grace to be close to you and open our mind and heart so that you can speak to us. But we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.